Two weeks ago, as we continued our study of 1 Timothy, we've been looking at those that should be honored. And so we looked at widows two weeks ago, and today we want to continue that same theme by looking at the subject of honoring and managing elders within the life of the church. Now, we've established, as we've worked our way through this book, that whenever we see the term elder, it's interchangeable with that of pastor or that of overseer. So an elder is a pastor, according to God's word. So today, I'll probably be using the term elder predominantly because that's what's in the text. But just know that when we use elder, we're talking about the office of pastor or the office of overseer. And we've learned throughout this study that some of the elders in Ephesus were not being faithful. In fact, they were teaching false teaching. They were concerned with genealogies and speculating over myths. They were engaged in practices that were not God-honoring, did not fit the office of what an elder should be. So in our text today, Paul is writing to Timothy, encouraging him and giving him clear direction about how elders should function within the life of the church and what happens if elders within the church behave in a way that is inappropriate with their calling. So this letter, along with many others that Paul writes, and Peter and many others in the New Testament, were given very clear direction throughout the New Testament about how churches should function and how they should operate. And so since the Bible is our authority, we should listen very closely to those books in the New Testament that describe for us what the church of Jesus Christ should look like. I've referenced this book a number of times because it came out recently this year, but The Great Dechurching, and one of the authors of that book, Ryan Burge, he's a professor at Eastern Illinois University, and I want to share with you some of the statistics that he shared in that book for us to consider. He said that in 2006, within our own denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, we were comprised of 16.2 million members. Today... Our convention only has 13.2 million members. The PCUSA Church in 1984 had 3.1 million. And today only has 1.1 million members. The Episcopal Church only has on any given Sunday in America 375,000 people in worship. And in the 1950s and 60s, that was one of the more popular and powerful denominations in America. So, again, the book goes into a lot of detail about why some of these things are happening. But I would pose to you that one of the reasons we are seeing many denominations, including ours, decline is because we are moving further and further away from what the New Testament teaches a church should be. Therefore, when we approach texts like this today, which are describing how elders should function in the life of the church, we should listen to what Paul is saying here. Because the church has been designed by God, as we learned in 1 Timothy 3, to be the pillar and buttress of the truth. So when the New Testament talks about what a church should be and what it should look like, it's not just giving us a suggestion. It's telling us this is what a church should be. 
And so when we just begin to think that we can make church whatever it is we want it to be and ignore the teaching in the Bible, it should really come as no surprise that many of our denominations are declining in size. So this morning as we go through this text, the instructions that we read here about elders should be listened to closely. It's important not just for our church, but it should be important for all churches And it was obviously very important at the church in Ephesus. So the instructions that Paul gives to Timothy this morning. Three things that are important. Actually, four things. Man, I messed myself up. I'm so used to saying three, but I actually had four today. Number one, provide for the elders. Number two, guard the elders. Number three, rebuke the elders. And then number four, be patient in identifying and appointing elders. So provide, guard, rebuke, and then be patient when identifying and appointing elders. Number one, provide for the elders. Now, I'm a little uncomfortable bringing up this point because this is a text justifying my own existence and also my own pay. So there's a little part of me that's like, "Mm, should I gloss over this? But as you know, we're always going to be faithful to preach through the text, even the parts of the text that are uncomfortable. So Paul says... Honor the elders. They are worthy of double honor. If Paul thought it was important to mention this, then I think we should communicate and teach what it is. What does Paul mean, though, when he says elders who rule well? Because that's really the most important point of this part of the passage. What does Paul mean that elders who rule well? Does this mean the church has some sort of rubric or some tool by which they should evaluate their elders? And if they do well, then they should get doubly honored? So the assumption from this text that Paul is making here is that the elders were serving well. It seems unlikely that Paul would continue to expect the church to provide for its elders if those elders were not living up to The qualifications that Paul laid out earlier in chapter 3 about what an elder should be and what his character should look like. So the evaluation tool or the rubric, if you will, that Paul would use and that we should use to determine whether or not the elders and the pastors of churches are successful is from 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, which we covered weeks ago. What does it tell us? They should be Above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, manage his own household well, and thought well of by outsiders. Now sadly, as we said weeks ago, sometimes these qualifications are ignored at the expense of more pragmatic signs of a successful pastor. For instance, the size of the church, the charisma of the preacher, the attractiveness of the church's programs, the financial health of the congregation. It's not that those things might not be a factor, but they should never determine whether or not an elder is worthy of, as Paul says, double honor. So we want to make sure that when we evaluate pastors, when you evaluate myself and Reed and Nick and Trey, you are evaluating us based on 1 Timothy 3. Are we living up to the qualifications that Paul lays out for what elders should be in the local church? 
Those are the qualities that matter. And by the way, those are all character qualities. Those are not gifts. Those are character qualities. And we said weeks ago that we should never, a church should never compromise character in order to get competency within its leadership. Character must always be the most important thing. So, what does Paul mean then by being considered worthy of double honor? This is both a reference to not only respect, but also payment. But we know, as Paul continues on in this letter, when he gets to chapter 6, he warns against the dangers of riches and the dangers of wealth. So he's actually saying in this instance that yes, elders should be worthy of double honor. They should be compensated appropriately. But at the same time, we know in chapter 6, he is warning against the dangers of money. So it's possible for biblical churches to have elders that are compensated, but also warn them to be careful about the dangers of money and the dangers of wealth. Did you know also in the first century and throughout the life of the church, it's also been very common for churches to have what we would call lay elders. That is, elders that are actually not compensated by the church, but that fit all of the qualifications laid out in 1 Timothy 3. Now, most of the time when we think of the qualifications there, we are thinking of paid pastors. But there are many churches that also employ, not employ, utilize lay elders to come alongside those paid staff members to lead the church appropriately. So you might even know some brothers and sisters in Christ that go to other churches, maybe here or elsewhere, that employ having pastors or elders that are actually lay pastors or lay elders. And there are some great benefits to that type of leadership. And here's why. Let me give you just a few reasons. Number one, it balances pastoral weakness. So one of the ideas behind having a plurality of pastors is that this should come as no surprise to you, but I don't score a 10 across every category of leadership. So there might be some areas where I'm weak, but Reed and Trey and Nick pick up the slack for my weakness in that area, and vice versa. And so when you have a plurality of leadership, it helps balance out pastoral weakness. It also helps diffuse congregational criticism. Because the more pastors both employed and maybe also lay, the more pastors that you have, the more opportunity the congregation can voice issues to the pastors. It adds pastoral wisdom as well. I'm certainly not all wise, but the more godly men, either paid or not paid, that fit the qualifications of what it means to be an elder, the more wisdom it brings to the church. And it can also, when you use lay elders, diffuse an us-versus-them mentality. When you actually raise up leaders within the own congregation to be lay pastors, sometimes the church members can identify more with that individual than they would a paid pastor. So there are many great benefits throughout the history of the church of having non-paid elders within the life of a church. But as Paul argues his point here, 
he references two passages from the Old Testament. The first is Deuteronomy 25.4, which reads, You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. This doesn't mean a whole lot to us. We don't really live in this type of society. But there was a process in the ancient world known as threshing, where an ox would be put in a circular, hardened area, and all of the plants would be laid out, and the ox would walk across all of these plants, and the grain would be separated out from the parts of the plant that were not needed. So this threshing floor was a hard surface where the plants were laid and the ox would use his hooves and he would step on the plants and as he stepped or she stepped on the plants, the grain would be separated. And then the farmers would come and pull out the grain. The rest would be removed. Now while the original purpose of this command from Deuteronomy 25.4, was actually meant for the good of the animal, over time, this text began being used as an analogy to provide for those who were laboring in the work of the gospel. In addition, Jewish scholars have also argued that this command in Deuteronomy is a command that we would call from the lesser to the greater. Meaning that if God had this much concern back in Deuteronomy 25 to care for oxen, to make sure they were cared for, then how much more would he have concern for human beings who were created in his image? So that's the first citation, Deuteronomy 25.4. But then we have another one where Paul says the laborer deserves his wages. And this reference is actually not an Old Testament reference. It's a reference to Jesus himself. In Luke chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus says, And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. These are the instructions that he gives as he sends out the 72 to go and do ministry, to proclaim the gospel, to heal in his name. Now, this reference is not only important for Paul's argument here in this letter, but it's also important because it shows us that Paul has just referenced Deuteronomy 25.4, and on par with that, he now quotes the teaching of Jesus. Why does that matter? It's showing us that already, as Paul is pinning this letter in the mid-60s, early to mid-60s, that Paul is already viewing Jesus' teaching authoritatively. So in other words, Jesus, or Paul here, is saying the words of Jesus are essentially canonical. You can say, or you can believe, the very words that I'm quoting Jesus saying in this passage. Now, ultimately, I don't think Paul is endorsing any sort of elaborate compensation for elders. Of course, he does say double honor here. But ultimately, he wants to make sure that the elders in Ephesus, and as Timothy continues to do the work of planning churches and faithfully teaching, he wants to make sure that elders are properly provided for, adequately compensated. And all elders should, number one, feel like their church does take good care of them. Which, by the way, I feel like y'all take good care of us. So this is not 
I'm not plugging any type of raise or anything when I say this. But there is a danger that elders or churches could take this idea of double honor and take it too far to where an elder suddenly feels so uh, consumed with material things that they lose their ability to actually rely on God himself. So every church has to think very, not only biblically, but strategically about how they go about compensating their pastors. No, you don't want pastors to be poor, but you also probably don't want your pastor to be the richest person in town because of what Paul goes on to say in 1 Timothy 6. So, Paul wants to make sure that elders are worthy, those that are worthy of double honor, that they're compensated appropriately, while at the same time, their hearts are not turned away from the truth of Scripture and begin to hunger and thirst over worldly material things, such as money and such as riches. So yes, we do, as churches, have a responsibility to provide for elders, but number two, we also have a responsibility to guard the elders. Paul is making an assumption here that elders will have charges brought against them. Partly, this is the nature of being a public figure in a position of leadership. But there are two truths that exist simultaneously here. Number one, elders are not perfect. They will make mistakes. But number two, oftentimes within churches, there are those that might go out of their way to make life difficult for the elders, including potentially bringing up false accusations. So what does Paul do? He sets up a safeguard to ensure that elders are not improperly accused. And how does he do that? By saying that multiple witnesses need to come forward if they have accusations against the elders. So what were these charges? Paul doesn't actually tell us. We're not really sure what was happening here regarding these elders, regarding these false accusations. But we are given a glimpse of potentially what it was if you go on and read Titus. In Titus chapter 1, we are told that um, there were some elders who were guilty of basically insubordination. So they were being lazy. They were not doing the functions of what it meant to be an elder. So Paul is telling Timothy, if these situations come up, if it's just one person then be potentially weary of it. But, weary? I don't think that's right. Leery of it. But if it's multiple people, perhaps we have an issue that the church needs to address. Let me give you an example of this. Every six to eight, ten weeks, I might, in the afternoon as I'm working on my sermon, have this moment of like intense sleepiness. Like incredibly drowsy. 95% of the time, I can push through it. But every once in a while, I might turn my lights off, set my phone to 20 minutes, and lay down on the couch. Now, if a church member were to walk in at that moment, because my office, for some reason, is the first one you see when you walk in, they might actually look at the pastor sleeping on the couch on the church's dollar, right? And that could be potentially a legitimate concern. But if it only happened one time then, you know, it's just a day when you're really, really tired. But if this were happening three, four, five days a week, and I'm taking naps, you know, longer than 20 minutes, I'm, I'm, I'm 
conked out for hours at a time. Church members are coming by. Multiple church members are coming by, and I'm sleeping in my office with the light off. Over time, there would be enough witnesses to potentially bring that concern to the whole congregation and say, we have a pastor who is not performing his duties as a pastor. He is sleeping. But if it was just one person and they saw me that one day, that would not substantiate enough of a claim to say Taylor should be fired. Because perhaps just one day I was exhausted, you people wore me out, and I needed a nap, right? I I say that jokingly to say it's one thing for something to happen one time. It's another thing for a repeated pattern of behavior. Over and over again, we have evidence from multiple people in the church about pastors, or I'm really just picking on myself here, the, one of the pastors sleeping on the job. So Paul is teaching Timothy here that more credibility should be given to an accusation against an elder when it comes from multiple sources. Now, what this doesn't mean is that if you have a problem with myself or one of the other pastors, that you go vent that that frustration to other church members. We know biblically the most appropriate thing to do is to always go directly to the individual that you have an issue or a concern with. Now, in my short time here, the, the times that that has happened, when a church member has sat down with me and expressed to me their concerns or their frustrations, you know how I always leave those conversations? I would say 99% of the time, I leave those conversations loving that brother or sister more. And here's why. Because I know it's hard. It takes courage to have those kinds of conversations. It's easy to go vent to our friends our frustrations about what's going on in the life of the church, but it's difficult to go sit down with somebody, look them in the eye, and explain to them your concern or your frustration. And so I have great admiration and respect for those people who take the time and the courage to come and in a very civil way express their concerns about what's going on in the life of the church. I never leave discouraged after those conversations. I leave loving that individual more. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy should happen. At the same time, don't think that pastors are off the hook here. If I have a problem with you or a frustration with you, I shouldn't just go vent to Reed and Trey and Nick about it, although I have been guilty of doing that. What I should do is approach you individually. If I'm going to ask you to come and have the difficult conversation with me, then I should go and have the difficult conversation with you. We should seek one another out. We should actually, as the body of Christ, assume the best in people, not the worst. Assume trust amongst one another rather than suspicion. And Paul is reminding Timothy in this passage, look, a great way to guard the elders is through the process of requiring multiple witnesses to bring up Uh, concerns or bring up accusations against the elders because this ensures that it's not just one person trying to destroy the credibility of one of the elders in Ephesus. So Paul sets this up. Guard the elders. Make sure you have a process in place where people are biblically going through the protocol of what is needed to happen if accusations need to be brought before the body. But number three, he also says there might be a time when elders actually do need to be rebuked. Specifically, Paul says in this passage, those that persist in sin. What does he mean here? 
persistent sin is really important to understanding this because in reality we all, in a sense, persist in sin because we're not saved fully from the presence of sin in this life. So we will battle daily uh, the passions and the desires of the flesh. We are waging war against an enemy. So what does Paul mean here when he says those who persist in sin? In the context of this passage, the best understanding here would be those that continue in sin even after a brother or sister in Christ has approached them to rebuke them for their behavior. It is at that point, Paul says, that they should be rebuked in the presence of all. Now this might sound, well it definitely does sound, uncomfortable. It might appear unloving or harsh, but it's biblical. You know, talking about judgment and talking about hell is hard, and it sounds unloving to some people, but we don't shy away from talking about judgment and God's wrath and hell. So why would we shy away from doing what Paul is telling Timothy to do here? We're not primarily concerned, or at least we shouldn't be, within the life of the church with saving face, but with being obedient. So what's the purpose for doing it this way? Why should these elders who persist in sin be rebuked in the presence of all? Paul gives us the answer. So that the rest may stand in fear. So think of it like this. If you've ever heard of a brother or sister in Christ, whether it be at this church or some other church, who is engaged in sinful behavior, and when you find out, you are just shocked. You would, could have never imagined that this individual would have done that. Is there at least not a part of you that when you hear stories like that, think to yourself, what's, what's stopping this from happening to me? There's this sense of fear, Right? That if it wasn't for the grace and mercy of God, this very situation that I'm shocked at could also happen to me. And that can be a very fearful yet also helpful way to understand the magnitude of sin. So imagine the scenario in Ephesus when these elders who persisted in sin were brought before the whole church to be rebuked. Don't you think that would have been a sobering experience? For all of those in the church, it would have made some of them stop to think, I really need to get my act together. Like, this could be me. I could fall prey to this type of sin. So one commentator concludes these instructions by saying this, The first step is to accept an accusation only if there are two or three first-hand witnesses. This would supposedly be in private and include confrontation with the elder. If the accusation is valid and the sinning still persists, then the elders should be confronted in public before the whole church so that the rest of the elders may fear, realizing that they will be held accountable for their own actions by the church and God and presumably so that the sinning elder will repent. We've always talked about in any of the conversations that we've had about church discipline in the New Testament, we always say that what is the goal of rebuking a brother or sister in Christ when they are in sin? The goal is always restoration. 
that's always the goal. For that brother or sister to be reconciled back to the body of Christ. Not to shun them, not to kick them out, but to make them see the severity of their sin so that they will repent of their sin and we will welcome them back into the family of God. So Paul charges Timothy to keep these rules and to handle it fairly, he says, without prejudging or showing favoritism. So what we need to do as a congregation, based on this passage, is pray that if this type of scenario were to happen within the life of our church, that the elder who had that accusation brought against them, number one, would turn from their sin. That they would not try to justify or excuse their behavior. Which, by the way, often happens because of pride. We always want to make excuses lay people and pastors, for our sins. We always try to justify our behavior. So number one, if this were to ever have to happen within the life of our church, we should number one be praying that the pastor or the elder would repent of their sin. That that rebuke would cause humility and the Spirit of God to work in their hearts so that they would confess and turn away but also that the church as a whole and the other pastors involved in this type of scenario would handle it fairly and without prejudging, like Paul says here. But number four, as Paul concludes this passage, he also reminds us that churches need to be patient in identifying and appointing elders. They should not do so quickly. The task of being an elder is of utmost importance to the life of the church. So there's always a time to examine fruitfulness, to see if men are giving evidence of what it would look like to be a faithful elder according to 1 Timothy 3. This would be faithfully teaching God's word, loving the sheep, showing up to worship week after week. Elders and deacons are not appointed based on their popularity, based on their profession, based on the amount of money they have, or based on their charisma. They should always be appointed based on the qualifications given in this letter and in other places. So what happens if a church, which would not be ours by the way, but what happens to churches that only have a solo elder or a solo pastor? Now, we're in a context where we have multiple paid pastors. We have a plurality of pastors. But what would happen if a church has a solo elder and that one pastor or that one elder feels the weight of an entire congregation and there is pressure, perhaps from himself and maybe within the congregation, to quickly find another pastor to alleviate that burden from him? Should they just move forward? No. They should go about doing so patiently, examining fruitfulness. If it happens to be another paid pastor that they're going to hire, they should do a lot of homework, and they should vet that candidate very closely and call the church, perhaps, where he currently works. If it's a lay person, then the church should be examining to see, is this individual faithfully teaching God's word? Is he discipling other believers? Is he sharing the gospel? Does he show up to church every Sunday, week in and week out, even when there's other things he could be doing? And if 
that potential elder only meets two of the five qualifications that the church is looking at, they should not appoint him as an elder. This is not an example of pick three of seven qualities, and if he fits three out of the seven, well, we'll just take him and he'll learn as we go. No, this is not what Paul is saying do. We need to provide an opportunity for that individual to demonstrate fruitfulness. That's all a church can do in that scenario. And by the way, as I share statistics like this from time to time, like I did earlier, please understand, the church of Jesus Christ is not going anywhere. We, we know that, right? So even as we hear these statistics of churches that are declining, that's only talking about churches in America. You do realize right now the church in Africa is growing like wildfire. God is at work. As it declines in America, it's growing in Africa. As the church in Europe becomes more secular, the church in South Asia becomes more biblical. God is at work. The church of Jesus Christ is not going anywhere. So there is no rush on our end to throw people into leadership if they are not meeting the qualifications that we have. Paul is telling Timothy, do not rush to appoint and install elders, but rather wait to see if fruit develops within their lives. To appoint elders who are engaged in sinful behavior, Paul tells Timothy, would be for you, in a sense, to either share in their sin or to make people think that you are somehow condoning their sin, which then hurts your credibility as an elder. So this is both a protection for Timothy himself, a protection for future elders, but also a protection for the church of Jesus Christ. Now, as an aside, we have this verse regarding drinking wine thrown into this passage that's really not about drinking wine. Now, I know all of you perked up when you read this verse. All of you non-teetotalers, you are championing here 1 Timothy 5, okay? The reference to drinking wine is really a parenthetical statement, okay? But here's what we think was happening and why Paul included it here. Timothy was abstaining completely from alcohol. And many think one of the reasons he was abstaining was to separate himself from the sinful behaviors of the false teachers in Ephesus who were apparently uh, abusing alcohol. But Paul tells Timothy, don't do this. And here's why he tells him not to. Because Timothy was literally hurting himself physically by doing so. I think we understand that outside of America, usually the water is not as good as it is in America. If you ever go on a mission trip, you drink bottled water pretty much the whole time. You don't take any tap water, generally speaking, from other countries because that water is normally contaminated. It is not as purified as the water that we drink here in America. So in the ancient world, water was not always safe to drink. But Timothy abstaining from wine, that wine was actually being used to settle his stomach, to cure whatever stomach issue he was having. So Paul is telling Timothy, look, I know you're abstaining from alcohol because these false teachers were abusing it, but I'm telling you this is not good for your physical health to do so. So it's okay, Timothy, for you to drink wine in this instance. The instruction then concludes after this 
random verse in verse 23 that really doesn't fit into the context of what we're talking about, which, by the way, I think is more evidence for the authenticity and the credibility of this letter, that something like that would just be thrown in there. But Paul concludes this passage by telling him, some of the sins that people are committing are blatantly obvious, but others are not so. So you need to be patient and carefully examine men when you consider potential elders. But in the same way, some of the good works that faithful men are doing are not immediately seen as well. So these verses, or this verse, reminds us once again of the importance in patience, in allowing God to do His work in the lives of potential elders. Examine their lives. Look for good fruit. You might not always be able to see it visibly. You might not be, always be able to see sin visibly as well. So when a church begins to identify potential men that they want to either raise up or to appoint as elders and pastors within the life of the church, it should be a patient process. Slowly watching to see if God is at work in the lives of these people. So these instructions for elders are important to us because of the importance of the church in proclaiming the gospel. Since the church is the gospel made visible to the community, it's important that it is structured and organized according to the example that we're given in the New Testament. The church is not just some place where super spiritual Christians gather. That's not what the church is. It's not just where really serious Christians come every week to worship. No, the church is the mechanism by which God takes the gospel out from this place to people that need to hear the good news of the gospel. We gather in here on Sunday to hear God's word, to be refreshed by encouragement, to be refreshed by singing and praying together and confessing sin together so that when we leave here, we are now ready to go into our neighborhoods, into our places of employment, into the gyms where we work out and proclaim the gospel. That's why the church exists. So if it exists to be the mechanism by which the gospel is proclaimed, isn't it important that the way we structure and function as a church align with the teachings of the New Testament? This is why when someone becomes a Christian, what is the first thing that we should do for them? Help them find a church. Help them find a church where they can be encouraged, where they can grow where they can learn more about what it means to follow after Jesus, where they can learn to pray, where they can learn to read the Bible. It's the most important thing we can do. That's what this letter is all about, is helping us to see the beauty and the majesty of the church of Jesus Christ. We are blessed, brothers and sisters, to have this family of faith. So let's heed Paul's instructions in this letter. And imitate the example that he's given us. Let's pray. Father, you have designed your church in a way that you wanted it to be designed. So we want to imitate and follow the design closely. We thank you for the instructions that Paul gives Timothy here. And may we 
take these instructions seriously. God, I'm reminded as I studied and prepared for this passage about the responsibility that I have as a pastor to faithfully lead this congregation according to your word and how important it is for me to to confess sin and to turn from sin and to uh, pursue righteousness and holiness by your spirit. So we thank you for this local expression of the body of Christ, First Baptist Dothan. May you continue to uh, build your church here through the preaching of your word, through confession of sin, through praying together, through reading scripture, through encouragement. We thank you for this local body and what a blessing and a gift it is to us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.